Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Changing Reels, the podcast that aims to change the conversation about diversity in front of and behind the camera, one reel at a time. My name's Andrew Hathaway. And I'm Courtney Small. If you're joining us for the first time, what we like to do is pick a feature-length film and a couple of shorts to discuss. We have three separate conversations. First two on the short films Courtney and I have chosen for the week, leading into a conversation about a feature film, and maybe the three will tie together, maybe not. But I don't have much going on on my end. Courtney, how about you? I just got back from like a mini vacation with the fam, so I'm slowly trying to get back together and get back into the work mode. Um, I had the unfortunate uh, luck of getting sick just before going on vacation, so whereas my family is now getting sick as they've come back, which is the usual way you're supposed to do it, I have to always do things a little different on my end. So you get to be sick during the fun times, and then everyone gets to be sick when you are back at the work times. Pretty much. That wasn't as exciting, but the, the time away was good, and not much else was going on. I went and saw Dunkirk today on 70mm, and that was a pretty intense experience. Ah, I guess to uh, tie back in with the capsule reviews we got last week for Baby Driver and so on, let's get your capsule thoughts on Dunkirk. Really enjoyed it. I guess in here in Ontario, there's only, I think, three cinemas that are showing it in 70mm, and one just happens to be like down the street from my house, so that was a bit of a treat. Yeah, just a really intense film from beginning to end. It's only, I think, an hour and 45 minutes or so. So it really flies by, but it does keep you on the edge of your seat. Considering Nolan's recent movies, that's almost like a short film in and of itself. Maybe we'll have to readjust our criteria on short films. Especially when you factor in, like, Interstellar was, what, two and a half hours and felt like four hours, so... Oh, I love Interstellar. I like it as well, but... I would say the last 30 minutes are unnecessary, but that's just me. Uh, the last 30 minutes are when it earned my love, when it got pushed into just like the uber audacious bending the universe with the power of love to go into the Stan Brackage dimension. I was fine with that, but you know, a little confused, but still fine. But is when you get the stuff after that. Like For me, the film should have ended. He sets things right, but then you get this whole other additional what i call the spielberg ending in which you're watching and going this film should have ended at least 20 minutes ago uh, it was nice having a hopeful denouement for nolan's movies as opposed to i don't know just going off in moody darkness or whatever at least the mechanizance gets to be transported to a new universe instead of rotting amid the dirt and so on but maybe we'll talk about that in future podcasts it's not a very diverse movie but we like to keep our options open that is very true. And if you listeners would like to suggest something to us, we highly recommend that you check out the Modern Superior Patreon. We are always up for whatever you all want us to watch and gab about. So go on over to Modern Superior, check out the Patreon, and see what kind of extra goodies you can get contributing to that. Getting back on into our typical format, two short films and then a feature. Courtney, what you got for our short today? My short is a fairly well-known short for the Canadian listeners. It's The Sweater by Sheldon Cohen. It's a short that's based on a popular children's book called The Hockey Sweater. The animated short here is narrated by Rock Carrier, who wrote the book, and it's all about his time growing up and that horrific time in his childhood when 
he didn't get the hockey sweater he so wanted. His mother ended up ordering him a Toronto Maple Leaf sweater in a town where it's nothing but Montreal Canadian fans and pretty much every kid has the Maurice Rocket Richard sweater. And this one particular one uh, short is near and dear to my heart because I grew up and I still am a Montreal Canadiens fan. But living in Toronto, <laughs> I took my fair share of abuse. So I, I identified with this. And there was a time back in, I guess, the late 80s, early 90s, where they were showing this short film in schools. There's times you would even catch it on TV. Nowadays, you don't see it as often, so I don't know if the new generation of Canadians are really in tune with this particular short, but considering that we were talking about patriotism this month, and I decided to look at it from the Canadian perspective in terms of celebrating the old and the new, I decided to pick a short that celebrates Canadian history and is an iconic one from the past. See, you could have told me that this was made, like, last year. There is an element of cultural confusion I was having watching this, simply because I'm not much of a hockey person. The closest I got to being a hockey person was minor league hockey here in the States, rooting for the South Carolina Stingrays. Go Rays even though I haven't paid attention to their roster in well over a decade now. But hearing that it is that old and it's based on a children's book, it makes a lot of sense with the animation because it had that kind of scratchy, almost improvised, based on warmth and love that a big one here in the States, maybe it's this way for Canada as well, but The Snowman, and that's a short that gets showed around Christmas time as well. It's a in a rotation with, you know, How the Grinch Stole Christmas and Charlie Brown Christmas and, to a lesser extent, Garfield Christmas, but uh, The Snowman is... Uh, like a kind of an emotional journey with a kid in a magical snowman and here it's a little bit more tactile a little bit more down to earth i loved how the emotions of the animation overwhelmed any kind of logical arranging of the perspective of a lot of the shots you'd have these moments where the kid would become this gigantic thing in the background even though it's in a tiny room and then rushing forward and taking out the whole area of the screen or you had those moments where keeping in with that emotional snapshot sort of thing walking his dog around what you get is just this brief shot of the dog barking with its full mouth and sharp teeth open at once. So there's a lot about the animation in that kind of, this is how I remember it, but it's not really how it was, but screw it, it's my perspective, so I'm going to go with it as I want. It made it really wholesome, even if there was some cultural stuff I was lost on. There's some points, especially early on, where it almost feels as if like you could picture a child coloring in parts of the scenery with crayon, just in terms of like the establishing that kind of warm, youthful glow to it. And as the film goes on, I think the animation gets crisper in certain parts, but it still keeps that same tactile feel. Especially when they're doing the images of Maurice Rocket Richard and then they try to do his likeness, but you still get that quasi-cartoon feel. And as you said, the, the bodies of all the kids are slightly different. So even though they're all wearing the same sweater, if you look at the hips and the legs, they're all done in a stylized way, but also they don't look proportionate <laughs> to what you would expect <laughs> children their age. But it just adds to the overall charm of the film. 
Well, and then you had moments, too, that seemed to lovingly take place from that kid's perspective, like when the mother is rocking back and forth on her chair, explaining it. And this was a great touch. I love that this does date it a bit, but that part of the mom's story to keep the kid in the sweatshirt is that she's going to have to write a letter and the owner of the company is going to take offense at it. You could maybe start gathering some tweet followers and tweet something and hopefully if it gets enough thousands of retweets they'll pay attention to you and try and do something or you have to go through their customer service. It was just charming that this is plausible. Writing a letter to the guy who owns this company while the kid's face is massively taking up the screen and then going teeny tiny and then massively taking up the screen and going teeny tiny. It's rustic in a fun way. Another thing that I loved and this is also likely the cultural difference um, I had no idea what the narrator was saying some of the time. When, oh, because of the thick accent? The thick yeah. accent. He kept saying, like, Maurice Richard. And my brain kept jumping to the love guru's Marishka Hargitay. And this is much better than the love guru. The love guru inspires a rage in me that I will have to now quietly avert, lest it take over the podcast. It was nice getting this glimpse into a culture that wasn't my own. And hearing just the lilt of the voice and while i was having difficulty understanding the visuals were so fun to look at that i was never totally lost in it i was just on board for the ride and trying to figure out these memories in the process we can all relate to times where there were certain things that we wanted and for some reason or other we couldn't get or our folks went and got us something completely different, was feeling out of touch and not realizing the social ramifications that when you're a young kid always seems a lot more massive than it actually is. <laughs> and even to talk about it being somewhat dated, the only thing that really felt dated for me was the fact that the store that they get the sweater from is Eaton's because there was a time when Eaton's was like one of the big chains here i'm trying to think of like what would be the american equivalent um maybe Kmart, maybe no it was it was bigger than that because we had kmart up here for a period but i'd say it was almost like the macy's because it was like eaton's and the hudson bay were like the two biggest chains that you would get everywhere and then as globalism does once the Walmart started to come in and whatnot and the lower prices thing, like I don't even think there's an Eaton's around anymore. I think they went maybe eight or nine years ago. Just funny just to reflect on a time when like people had to do the mail order through Eaton's. Even for me that seemed you know, the whole catalog shopping I vaguely remember, but it still seems well past my time. And nowadays, as you said, with Twitter and social media, people could easily contact or an embarrass a company that way. And if they want to order something, they just go on Amazon or do everything online. In theory, you wouldn't have this situation. The only the problem is you might get the sweater not in your size, but the odds of getting exactly what you want are far greater. I was actually thinking the opposite. Like, it's so much easier to deflect the customer than it used to be. But as you were chatting, I was thinking about my days beside the fireplace looking through the Toys R Us holiday gift guide. So one country or another, we've definitely got our things. And keeping with the whole theme of consumerism, your short was a rather interesting one this week because I never thought about the process of making cornbread. And this, <laughs> yours seemed to offer a, uh, a unique perspective to that. The director and animator for my short, Lev Yilmaz, I have been a huge fan of his for over a 
decade. This short is part of Tales of Mere Existence, which is a series he started in like 2002-2001, where he animates it, if you can sometimes call it animation, it's usually quickly drawn, if crisply drawn, reactions as he's narrating a story. And in the spirit of patriotism, he had recorded a couple of less than optimistic videos that his audience didn't have a great reaction to. I liked them a lot, and they're probably more indicative of his pessimistic, sarcastic nature than non-political video is. In the spirit of The Visitor, which we talked about last week, and considering the pressures that folks who aren't white kind of have to do or are conditioned to restrain when they're expressing political opinions, I maybe should have sent you the other two videos as background reading, but I also kind of felt like that would be unfair because I like seeing reactions to these shorts in a vacuum. And I think there's a lot about the animated Lev's scared expression talking about the reaction to his videos and his insistence in being as neutral as possible to cornbread that speaks a lot about how he has trained himself to respond to negative criticism when he himself is criticizing the country. Because I didn't have that backstory in terms of his other shorts. I found this one interesting. I found it witty, and I liked the style. It almost looked like he was drawing it on a frosted glass as he was narrating it. But then I felt like there could have been more political jabs in it, even though the whole premise was him trying hard not to be political. When he refers to the rustic cowboys of uh, <laughs> yes. the free American frontier, I wanted, I wanted more moments like that. I guess that is something to do, and it's kind of a point that I maybe should have invited my buddy Karthik in on because there is a specific expectation and it's this way with like Turkish and Indian and Mediterranean folks here will many times have these strict family structures or expectations of them being immigrants or being from a family of immigrants that they aren't supposed to criticize and aren't supposed to moan about these conditions that they have here in America. A lot of white Americans have taken that as an excuse to amp up their own criticism criticism when those folks are criticizing things. So it's the glimpses into the overt political things that I like as a contrast to his scared, dead-eyed stare into the camera the entire time as he's discussing making cornbread. It's also just a quiet little jab on this... (laughs) This tendency for us to photograph food, which is so weird, and I don't know if it's my age speaking when I say that I don't get it and I don't necessarily want to get it. Maybe it is, or maybe I'm just not a food guy. I don't know. But rooted so specifically in Trader Joe's Cornbread, which is a chain here we've got that also has its own questionable politics at times. It kind of varies, but something so mundane And he tries to make it as mundane and neutral as possible, but any recollection or any stumbles into the past, he has to overcorrect himself so much. So it's extremely American in that sense. I don't know if that adjusts or makes you rethink this into a modern-day masterpiece or what. 
I do see tons of promise, and I liked that there are a lot of subtle but pointed jabs, especially at social media, in terms of how social media is pretty much used as a distraction. Because, like, you know, when you said how you could post an image of it, and maybe your friends will like it, and someone will even comment with by saying "yum" or you know some positive thing to make you feel good through all of this like even at the beginning he has the little i think it was a facebook like or thumbs up thing pointed downward and i like the idea of this short in terms of you could do this and while the cornbread's baking don't fall into the trap of being distracted by what's going on in the paper and cnn you know don't think about the world as it is or how it once was just turn your mind off of everything even though this is the point in time when you should be tuned into everything right so (laughs) i I loved all that aspect of it because i'm coming from my first experience with his shorts i thought it was amusing and think i just wanted more and i guess what you're saying is he does give more but just in another couple of films Oh yeah, there is a whole slate of them, so I'll make sure to include a link to the collection, because I bought his first volume of Tales of Mere Existence in graphic novel form, more or less, back in like 2004, and I know it's among my books somewhere, I hope it still is, because I love it, but Lev Yilmaz is one of my, I guess, cynical joys... Because he's not too optimistic about a lot of things, but the humor that he puts into stuff and his political views and his relationship views and such, it speaks to melancholy, Andrew, despite the differences in our upbringing and so on. So, yes, Courtney, I highly recommend that you go and check out some of his other ones. And really, if a title grabs you, click away. Yeah, and I'll also keep an eye out for that book he says, a graphic novel. He's got like four books now. Five. Wow. Two volumes of Tales of Mere Existence, The Seven Habits of Highly Negative People, Sunnyside Down, and The Doom Room. Wow. So... <laughs> it's going to be some uplifting reading. Well, I think that we will have some more conflicted emotions and some uplift when we talk about our feature films. So we're going to take a quick break to change some reels, and then we will be back with our feature film, Jean-Marc Vallée's Crazy. Our feature film for the day is the 2005 French-language, Canadian, coming-of-age, insanely shot, high-energy, great soundtrack, crazy, directed by Jean-Marc Vallée. It was also written by Vallée and Francois Boulet. It tracks the life of Zachary Bellou. Zachary is a boy born under some rough circumstances who has been left with chronic asthma into a deeply conservative family with a little bit more of a lenient mother and a strict if loving father as he grows up through the decades is struggling with homophobia in his life as he tries to come to terms with his homosexuality in dealing with the pressures he faces both at school with a girl who likes him with his family extended family and the folks his extended family dates courtney I thought this was an excellent pick. little curious on the patriotism tie, though, so why don't you tell us a bit about why you picked it and the patriotism angle. As a Canadian, my view of patriotism is slightly different than the rah-rah American one that (laughs) we often see. So for this week, I decided just to go completely opposite route, and since 
This month marks Canada's 150th birthday and celebrations. I decided to pick a film that represents modern Canadian cinema, and this one is, I guess, uh, could be argued one of the more recent classics from Canadian cinema. And I know Jean-Marc Vallée is probably more well-known for directing, at least in the States, uh, Dallas Buyers Club, and I think he did Wild as well. And even the TV show, uh, what was it, Big Big Little Lies? With, uh, is that the one with Reese Witherspoon and Nicole Kidman? Could be any others, because there's like Big Little Lies, Pretty Little Liars, lying, yeah, Liars big, Who Lie a Lie. Big Little Lies, that's the I think the HBO one. Before then, he was making films in Canada. I remember, I think the first time I encountered him was a film that he uh, did back in 1995 called Blacklist. But this one was the film that really put him on the map, at least here in, in Canada. I liked how he pointed out that it's insanely shot. This film is a delight to watch. He took a rather typical coming-of-age tale and infused it with so much life and energy. Um, the music is so central to this film and you know when i think back to my childhood and i guess when we all think back to our childhood music does play an important role in the various aspects of our lives be it this, the, the music that our parents play or the music that we use to try and define our identity and as we see through this film zach his identity is constantly changing with the times and it's just really well done the, the film goes places that i did not expect it to and i think that's what really makes it memorable Well, as a prelude to Changing Reels, Courtney and myself did a podcast series for Can't Stop the Movies on the films of Denis Villeneuve. And watching Crazy here, and I should also notice like C.R.A.Z.Y couldn't quite get a connection for every single one of those letters except for the Y so if anyone wants to fill us in on the acronym please do so watching Crazy it reminded me a lot of watching Maelstrom seeing someone from a different cultural background just go hog wild on their imagination and there isn't anything as crazy as the series of narrating soon to be headless fish in Maelstrom though that is a pretty tight bar for crazy there's this exuberance to crazy that fits its title perfectly there are moments of sadness but this isn't a somber romp in self-hating gay guy trying to figure himself out and one of the refreshing twists and there are a lot of refreshing twists here particularly when it comes to religion and the way that's presented but the psychologist that the father wants him to see because he's gay and of course zach doesn't see that as a impediment nor should he because that's as normal as normal can be but that gets turned around from our expectations of the psychologist like reinforcing the dad's negative point of view, when the psychologist wants to help Zach understand what he's doing when he's acting out with his father. And we see so many of these sometimes scare tactic movies. Jesus Camp is a great example of this, which is basically like liberal horror porn, examining the worst of religion and impulses and so on. But it's nice to actually see that the psychological help here, it's not negatively reinforced, and it really is trying to help Zach get more comfortable into his identity. And his mom is fantastic. Fantastic. I have not seen as pure-hearted and selfless 
a portrayal of a deeply religious woman in a long time. And I think you could also make a case that maybe the whole Catholic priest portion is a little rough considering what we know about Catholicism, but at the same time, I've known a ton of great Catholic priests as well. And the little bits of even the priest kind of recognizing how hard it is for Zach having his birthday on Christmas, making his life a little easier, that was great too. Every aspect of the storytelling of this, even though it hit some beats that I felt familiar with, it all felt so damn fresh. It takes an interesting approach to religion. There comes a point early on where Zach becomes an atheist, but still honors the promise he made to God to go to midnight mass on Christmas Eve. And those scenes, at times, they kind of remind me of a Simpsons episode, but they're not done so cartoonishly because, like, you know, that's when, in Zach's mind, the fantasy takes over. There's the one part where he's picturing like the entire church he's singing the music he's humming in his head and he uh, has that moment when he's younger where he envisions the priest just saying you know what mass is too long go home open your presents have one and you know you you get a good glimpse into his personality but yet through the mother there's still the seriousness of religion i like how they play because it's never even though he's not quite down with it for most of it he still doesn't completely ignore its importance within his family and especially to his mother it's a nice contrast to his father who is only supportive of him when he exudes the i guess quote-unquote macho tendencies that he envisions that zach should be he does not know how to communicate with zach when zach does not fit that particular mold and i thought that caused a very interesting dynamic you know often volatile but just a really interesting father-son dynamic you don't often get in cinema well it's a lot more nuanced than most because correct me if i'm wrong i don't think there was ever a moment where the father actually became physically violent with any of his kids no there's a point where you think he's going to do it with the oldest brother raymond and raymond and zach are constantly at each other and when he uses a, a homa Foic slur towards Zach. When Raymond does, that's when the father looks like he, he's coming close to the blows. But for the most part, I don't think he does. There might be a moment towards the end at the wedding, but I don't remember them him ever being re- truly physical with his kids. With his kids, yeah, because that scene I remember was where one of the people at the wedding was calling Zach a fairy, basically making fun of him the whole time. It's kind of like this inherent contradiction in conservative male viewpoints, because Zach's dad, Gervais, he is a good dad for the most part. He's not loving, even though his conservatism is present, and there's this great shot this rack focus change between Gervais and Jesus's stern portrait in the background that I found deeply amusing considering the tension in the room at the time but he's not really the things that he kind of wants Zach to be while there's that tough love aspect we also get those tender scenes of Gervais singing his standard holiday tune to everyone's delight slash dismay it gives it that nice lived-in feel. We have problems with our family, but we're going to get together and we're at least going to be happy while he sings this song. And it still leaves room for a good bit of critique of Gervais as well, because in one of the moments he thinks that Zach 
isn't gay. He's sitting in his car with another one of the sons as uh, Zach's kind of girlfriend, kind of best friend who wants to get with him, but he's still trying to figure out his sexuality, storms off. And the father is sitting there smiling that she stormed off because Zach must have tried to feel her up. That is really unhealthy in terms of like what you want for your kid. He's kind of hoping Zach committed sexual assault because it would prove that he's not gay. So you have those moments amidst the moments of love that add a lot more nuance in this tension relationship than you get in a lot of other movies. There's a moment where the mother and father are talking, and the mother is basically saying, Zach isn't that different from you, or at least what you were at that age, and alluding to the fact that maybe the father might have done some experimenting of his own. It adds a certain nuance to the relationship that he has with his son, because he tries so hard to get Zach to become this ideal that, as you pointed out, he's not quite himself. I was a little taken back by that whole, oh, he tried to grow her up, that's my boy, attitude. And you have that later on when Zach is beating up another student, trying to give that kind of male, uber macho persona, hey, don't look at me funny guy type of attitude. And the father's like, oh, well, he beat up a kid that was twice his size. That's my boy. And he takes so much pride in these actions that you're like, no, you shouldn't be proud of. But through Zach trying to change a certain aspect of him and almost bury a certain aspect of his past but you got to think he has what five sons in total he already (laughs) has a son that's the jock he's got the brain he's got the bad boy slash druggie you've got the various facets so you would assume that a zach would be the last remaining facet of his previous life one of the lines that crazy treads deftly, and this is a huge boon to the screenplay here, is not always presenting Zack as healthily getting through his identity issues or his sexual issues. His homosexuality throughout the movie is presented as normal. It's Zack's environment that has this bad reaction to it. But then Zack also has a bad reaction to the bad reaction. When he's trying to figure out what his identity is and he goes through this kind of Sid Vicious punk phase, there's a shot where he throws wine at the troubled brother who just told his girlfriend to shut up and sit down, breaking the happy vibe of their recent engagement. Valley goes into this picturesque perfect image of Zack stepping back with his hands up in the air and this sly grin like he immediately sees himself as the punkiest of punks at this point. You know, I really showed my family there by throwing wine in my deeply troubled brother's face. And that doesn't excuse what the father's been doing to Zack, nor does it excuse what Raymond put him through when Zack was a kid, constantly teasing him and basically taunting his dad to take his aggression out on Zack for being gay. But that moment, it's faux punk. It's taking a stance just to take a stance, which I guess is kind of anarchist in a way, but again, it doesn't excuse what they've done, but it also doesn't excuse Zack for further ruining his brother and his now fiance's happy moment and there's a lot of moments of that of zach kind of hurting other people in the process of finding himself that 
it feels dramatically true and it doesn't entirely let Zack off the hook while still providing him a good bit of emotional nuance. There's a certain selfishness to Zack that I guess can represent the selfishness of youth where you have that scene where he douses the wine in his brother's face. What he also does to Michelle, stringing her along, also speaks to that as well. Even from, I guess, when they're they're first fooling around and that time where she he storms off even though she's i guess his best friend he still talks down to her he's the one who decides whether or not they're gonna make out or whether or not they're gonna take their relationship uh to the next level so he pushes her aside and basically says it's gonna ruin the friendship at that moment but then she points out that you weren't saying that when we did this last week even later on when they become a official couple for the time being his mind is still on other things like she almost feels like an accessory at times that moment at the wedding i felt so bad for her you know because she's been clinging for so long and i guess all the women to a certain aspect have been clinging to the men of this family for a long time and have had to endure a lot of crap his selfishness does come into play a lot and even when he goes on his i guess pilgrimage if you will even though he's finding himself and having his own spiritual journey the rest of his family especially his mother is left to kind of grieve and hope that he's all right but it's also telling that it, after the post-wine flinging, like in terms of how he uses Michelle, he's still trying to enact this macho masculine fantasy that his father is imagining he wants his son to have, he wants Zack to have. After that, I believe it's the first time that they have sex. And it's that kind of rough camera shaking, hitting the ground kind of violent sex that Zack, now that he's in this punk image, imagines he's supposed to be having. You know, I've proven my masculinity by throwing wine on my disturbed brother, so now it's time to do my other manly thing and take this sexual aggression out on my girlfriend. While she rightfully flirts with other dudes because Zack's not there. I mean, he's not there for her at all. And it's weird because Crazy doesn't really go through, like, a cycle of redemption exactly because Raymond dies eventually because of a heroin overdose as Zack is off barely living in a desert after abandoning his family and there's not really a point where like everyone comes together and says you know I forgive you for this or I forgive you for that but there's still those touching moments where there's nothing communicated other than the physical actions that we're watching, like at the end when Gervais and Zach hug and Gervais is crying while Lorianne, who's the mother, is watching the two of them. While a lot of this feels familiar, it doesn't have a lot of those typical climactic emotional conflicts. The way it visualizes everything so aggressively, it almost helps paint the story of the smaller conversations that maybe are going on in the background while we're getting these quiet moments in front of the screen. I think the fact that the film, or at least Zach's life as we see it, spans about two decades helps because I like that the film didn't have those big sweeping speeches and this is who I am, you need to understand me and type moments that you'd get in a lot of other films because Valet doesn't have time for that. He gives you just enough of each section and the various years that he's focusing on that you get the sense of the family and that even in tragedy, the family is so 
tight, at least tightly woven that you don't need to have those words. Once you come back in, you could still have the union, even in the grief, all the brothers could still lie in the same room and laugh at something juvenile or whatnot. And I thought that was great. And one of the things that also struck me is stylistically how as we go through the years, we get the, the different feel. Like, I mean, the family remains the same. They stay in the same house, but just the way how the film is shot, like the fantasy sequences get a little more elaborate. The use of color is different. One of my favorite scenes is actually when Zach gets into the bike accident when he tries to to run the red light, assuming that the Lord will make that light green just as he comes. And when he gets hit by the car, the way how the camera focuses on him, almost as if he's on like, it's like a, a swing dolly or something. I'm not sure how he captures that shot, but it's just a, a magnificent moment. And it's almost like he's is floating to a certain aspect. I like that he incorporated moments like that or the whole ring of smoke and how that is kind of like a recurring motif. It always signifies a particular aspect of him, at least hormonally. I want to focus in on that crash, too. It's like Zack's life at times almost seems like a joke to him because of how close he's been to death. We get this full, oh shit, expression on Zack's face, frozen in front of the screen for a bit, but it looks like a slapstick moment. And the same thing happens at the very beginning when we rush from warm family holiday to sudden death seriousness. The reflections in the ornaments as the mom's water breaks, and then it's all dark and dour as mother sits there in her bed wondering what's going to happen with her baby. And then it's back to bright again. Everyone's coming in and the family comes in and everyone's happy. And then because one of the brothers, like, tugs on Dad's arm, he drops the baby, which smash cuts into Zack being in that church. I like that it takes these matters of life and death not too seriously. It helps a lot of the background emotions and kind of the turmoil of Zack's life. Like him already seeing this as kind of a cosmic joke, because if there's someone out there, he doesn't really seem to be looking out for Zack, even though things kind of turn out okay, but it's such an odd tone, and I was just wondering what you thought about that. Uh, well, I think the tone works well because I guess the juxtaposition of the dark and the light aspects works well because there's also that running theme about Zack having a gift. And it was Mrs. What's-Her-Name who, <laughs> who, who told the mother that Zach is special and he has a gift. And if he recites the, the specific prayer, I guess his gift, what I gather is he can heal those who are ailing, but we don't know exactly how it works. And Zach doesn't really seem to buy into it, but at least when he's younger, he goes on, he at least goes along with it at first until his father kind of chastises him. And then as he gets older, he fluffs it off for a good portion of his life but without having those kind of contrast between serious start and that kind of thread doesn't work that thread for a lot of it is played for last but as the film goes on that particular aspect gets a little more serious and yes zach nearly or i guess in his case died twice even yeah. if it was only for like three seconds but when raymond dies you feel it right so i think it works really well i don't think without the humor you don't get the great fantasy sequences that also help to show how Zack is coping with his life. A lot of filmmakers, I think, would mess it up, but Valet does a fantastic job balancing the two tones. And you know what, let's get personal for a second, because I think this is a really good movie to do that. Where, where do you fall spiritually or not at all? 
well, I was raised Anglican and my wife is Catholic. So we are, I'd say, fairly religious. We don't make it to church every Sunday, but we do try and then we are trying to raise our children Catholic. I guess I would say I'm deeply spiritual, but at the same time, I don't impose my faith on others. I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but I just kind of keep it internalized. And yeah, that's, I think that's where I fall on it. What about yourself? I think that's a great thing, honestly. I think that the best thing that you can do with your faith is live by example. And then if other people ask you, you know, why do you act this way? Well, you know, then you can do whatever. <laughs> and I'm glad that there was some ownership there at the end because I was hearing a lot of wheeze and I was like, oh, oh, I hope he doesn't dodge this. Uh, no, no, no. I, 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 fully, uh, I fully admit it. Myself, I was extremely religious for a very long time, non-denominational Christian. As I got older, that kind of fell by the wayside as I kept getting sick, and I kept getting sick, and I kept getting sick. And it was like, well, either there's not much of anything for me, or this is all some kind of joke. So I figured I'll figure it out when I get there. One of the things that I really wrestled with with my depression over the last couple of years and have made a good bit of peace with is that I'm definitely not an atheist. Like, I think I kind of made some, I guess, I'm trying to think of the way of phrasing it. Much like Zach was kind of posing as a punk, I think I was posing as an atheist for a bit. And the universe is too weird, too awesome to not have at least that opening for myself in there. And the more that I find out about what the brain can do and weird things with families and so on, the more I like I, I've kind of almost come back around not to a full embrace of anything. Malcolm X's religious teachings it in total earnestness speak the most to me, particularly his own journey of redemption. But that's why Zach's story overall spoke to me and also how Jean-Marc Vallée with Lorianne always leaves that possibility open that she really does feel this spiritual connection with her son I like I think if I showed this to my mom my mom would be like see see this is why you've got to go to church with me but it's it's beautiful she does have this empathic bond whether it's legitly spiritual or not so what it's there and Lorianne expresses her faith so healthily there's I believe a bit of narration from Zach where he talks about how his mother really walks in the footsteps of Jesus watching her in this movie hell yeah she's a flawed human but not to denying herself what she thinks is this is her purpose when she realizes what Zach is hiding from himself and from others the gift could be Mrs. What's-Her-Face's spiritual healing powers or whatever but it also could just be the fact that he's the person who's going to help his dad someday make some peace with that side of himself that he keeps locked inside so you know overall speaking as a deeply agnostic optimist I loved that. I, I just loved how healthily it was all presented and how it just kept that possibility open without shutting the door entirely or saying it was one way or the other. In many ways, that's how religion really should be, because one of the things that struck me about the mother is that she's grown up in the same era and the same environment as the father, Gervais, but, but 
she could still have her faith, but not be so attached to the rules, if you will, of the text to not see how best to help her son through life. Because from an early age, she realized what he was interested and even goes out of her way to, you know, when she has the oh, fifth son. Great bringing that up. I love which that brings up, scene. Yeah, when she has the fifth son. She knew that Zach always wanted to have a stroller, right? And it was, it was almost like her having another child was her way of saying, you see, I was going to get you, I would still get you that gift that you want. I know that you wanted this last year and you didn't get it. Here, you can push the real thing and live your life. Like throughout the seasons, she's very supportive. And I think for me, I guess I've become more in touch with my faith as I've gotten older. Because I guess we all go through the teen years where you question and, what happened and, and life experiences but i find even though now that i'm more in touch with it i also notice that there are those who claim to be devoutly religious and can quote you every chapter and verse of the bible but yet they lack natural faith faith in others and faith in themselves that's Whereas, a beautiful way of putting it by the way yeah and you you watch the mother here and like she's got confidence in herself and her family she tries the best she can but she also will do what she needs to do to ensure that her children are okay i find that bond between her and zach i think is a result of her coming to that realization. At least that's how I interpret it. No, I completely agree with you there, and, and I love like everything that you said, which I guess will bring us to the big selling point of crazy as far as the overall tactile experiences, and that's that soundtrack. Hoo-wee, dude. Like, they're, they're those classical standards, and then I also loved hearing the Louie, 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 Louie. Like, I love that song. And aside from Louis' show, I didn't really expect to hear that in a movie or something like this ever. Like, the energy behind Valet's camera and the conflict of Zack, combined with that soundtrack, it made me think of if Scorsese was less of a self-hating or self-doubting Catholic. Scorsese's earliest movies were all about his characters. What's it going to take them for them to tip and damn themselves forever, you know, to the point of literally testing themselves in the fires of hell, like in Taxi Driver with the gas flame and so on. But it goes in a very different direction here, because the repression Valet correctly identifies as in this unhealthy conservative mindset, whereas music like David Bowie's or the Louis 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 Louis, they gave Zach a healthy output instead of Scorsese scoring a barroom brawl with a bunch of folks. Yeah, I love the moment where he's channeling his inner Bowie and having the deep powerful moment only to have i guess it was a jock brother of all people come in and beat him and uh, and hurl a slur at him and then you realize that like half the teens in the area were watching him do this performance that he was completely unaware of uh, I, I thought that was a even though it's supposed to be i guess a, a somewhat sad moment at the end i thought that the whole sequence was rather amusing i read i think it was on wikipedia when i was just looking up this film that they spent nearly it was like 10 or 11 percent of the budget the producers i guess had like two years or so of just trying to acquire the rights to all the songs that they used because the soundtrack is phenomenal and i remember the first time i saw this film i was wondering how did they get the rights to all these things i would never expect a canadian film to have such a diverse soundtrack with so, so many big name artists 
Sympathy for the Devil couldn't really have come at a cheap price. Like, nothing Rolling Stones related comes at a cheap price. It could have been over the top, but instead he uses those musical cues as a gentle segue, um, even though it's fun or energetic, into whatever era that Zack and family and so on are moving on to that point. Valet's career after this is weird for me because I was not a huge fan of Dallas Buyers Club, but now after seeing Crazy, I kind of understand what he was going for. I guess what the producers are going for by getting Valet for Dallas Buyers Club because it's got a lot of that subjective energetic camera, but it spends most of its time either in shaky, dirty surroundings or on the floor as Matthew McConaughey's character gets his drugs and gets his sex and then gets AIDS. Wild, I think, was like a major uptick and is a lot more like crazy, though a bit more directly emotionally conflicted than crazy's freewheeling attitude. I now get the appeal a lot more. Like, I adored Wild. But now that I've seen this, it's like, hello, eyes, you are now seeing the world. Is that that level now where I hate to call him the new Agoyan? Oh, I, I love Agoyan. No, don't break no, but I don't. I don't. <laughs> but I don't think he is. But, but I, what I mean by that is more there was a period where you had Cronenberg, Agoyan, and a few other Canadian filmmakers make that big leap from Canadian films to big time American film and just reach that level of cred where they could make the type of films that they want with a big Hollywood budget. And now Valet's part of that era with Denis Villeneuve, who, as you know, I'm a huge fan of, and I'd say even Xavier Dolan, who is now reaching that level where there you've got that next wave that can make those big American films with the big name stars and get that thing. So that's that's why I was thinking about the Egoyan thing. I don't. I think their styles are completely different, but just in terms of being Canadian filmmakers who can make that leap into big budget American filmmaking. Well, we're gonna have to do an Egoyan movie at some point because that was one of my first major projects for Can't Stop the Movies. So that'll wrap us up for the day. Courtney, how can folks reach you? They can reach me at the Changing Reels Twitter account, which is at Changing Reels AC, or they can reach me directly on Twitter at Small Mind. And for my Myself. You can reach me at Twitter at Can't Stop Drew. I also monitor the Gmail account, changing.reels.ac at gmail.com. You can also help support my work on this podcast by contributing to the Can't Stop the Movies Patreon. I've been going full steam with the Patreon-exclusive Can't Stop the Podcast there. Just uploaded my second episode on the first part of the Netflix series 13 Reasons Why after reviewing the book other than that courtney this this was fantastic i appreciate the pick thank you for indulging my roundabout way into canadian patriotism well thank you for listening folks and remember you can change the conversation on diversity one reel at a time this has been a presentation of the modern superior media network 